Well, good morning and welcome to the second presentation of this series of studies today. It's, of course, my honor and my uh, most esteemed privilege to be your speaker this morning. I'm very thankful for the opportunity that uh, brothers Greg and Art have afforded me to speak to you all. I'm thankful for each and every one of you that are present at this study, especially uh, those uh, earlier slots in the day. I know that there's certainly other things you can be doing, sleeping probably being one of them, but yet you've chosen to be here and uh, to listen to me ramble on for a few minutes, and I'm thankful for that. And also, finally, I'd like to take the time to thank the congregation here at Grapevine. I know that they've put forth much effort as well in being such hospitable hosts and uh, making sure we have everything we need during this series of studies. If you can't tell already, just by the tone of my voice, my throat is a little bit dry. The cold air has finally gotten to me. It happens about once a year to me, and I was hoping that it would hold off until after the study was over or happen before the study started, but uh, I didn't get that lucky. So hopefully, as long as the microphones hold out, we'll be just fine. I did speak yesterday morning up in Mission Hills in Springfield, Missouri, and uh, my uh, voice held out for that entire sermon, so hopefully it will this morning as well. As Brother Greg mentioned, uh, I'm a college student. I graduated with my uh, bachelor's degree not too long ago, this past spring, in fact, with my degree in biochemistry, and then I'm now working on my master's degree in uh, ancient Roman history. And so those two things, if you can't tell already, are going to play a a role in helping me prepare for this topic in particular. So hopefully I'm able to say some things that maybe are of some benefit to you. As this topic is part of the series on fundamentals in worship, I realize that it may be familiar to many of you in the audience. At the very least, uh, this is something that many here or maybe those who might watch this later have an opinion about already. And that being said, I'd like to spend at least a fair portion of my time looking at some of uh, the most recent contributions to this field of study and see if uh, there are any beneficial or detrimental uh, issues or evidences uh, to our continued search for the truth on this matter of the fruit of the vine in the Lord's Supper and its identity and its use in subsequent observances of this memorial service. Besides this, the outline for our study this morning will be fairly simple. We're going to begin by just a uh, rote examination of the institution of the Lord's Supper as it's recorded in the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels in particular, and in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And then secondly, we're going to look through the rest of the Bible and uh, maybe glean some information about the fruit of the vine and how it was used in various circumstances. I'll also mention some of the ancient Roman sources that, were, that will shed light on the issue. And then third and finally, we'll look at some of the earliest observances of the Lord's Supper in order to see how the early church would have followed the command to use the fruit of the vine. And then lastly, and perhaps throughout the entire study, we're going to take a brief look at some historical dates and some of these questions that I've got listed on the board to my right, your left. This was a list of uh, six questions that was sent to me by uh, the brothers who arranged this study, and I wanted to make sure that uh, I wrote them on the board. If you'd like to write them down as we read through them, that'd certainly be encouraged. I wanted to make sure that I address them each in sequence, and so we'll take time to answer those as well. The, the questions to, uh, that we've got written on the board are as follows. I know my handwriting is not the best, 
So if you can't read it or if you can't see it, if you're sitting in the back and you can't see it quite well, I'll read through them and I repeat each one of them as well so that we can have a good idea of where this study will be headed. Question number one is explain what liquid was in the cup in the Lord's Supper. This would have been in the original institution of the Lord's Supper on the night that Jesus was betrayed. So question number one, explain what liquid was in the cup in the Lord's Supper. Question two, does the phrase fruit of the vine in the Bible always refer to grape juice or can it also mean un or fermented wine? Number two is, does the phrase fruit of the vine in the Bible always refer to grape juice or unintoxicating grape juice, or can it also mean fermented or intoxicating wine? Number three, how can we determine if a reference to wine in the Bible is fermented or unfermented? How can we determine if a reference to wine in the Bible is fermented or unfermented, intoxicating or non-intoxicating? Number four, may another liquid be used in the cup when no grape juice is available? Is there another permissible uh, liquid that we could use for the observance of the Lord's Supper if we find ourselves in a situation without grape juice? Number five, must the grape juice we use be red or purple? Uh, the only other option to my knowledge, I've never seen a different color besides red or purple and uh, white or green grape juice. So those are the two options that we'll look at for that question. And then number six, how could grape juice be preserved unfermented in Bible times? And we'll look at some of the ancient Roman sources for that as well, as they will certainly shed some light on the issue too. <clears throat> to begin, we're going to read from the gospel accounts of the Last Supper, starting with the account in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26, it says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, this is my body. Verse 27, then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 22, the evangelist says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And he repeats the same phrase that was found in Matthew chapter 26 there at the end. In Luke chapter 22, and verse 14, he has a slightly different order. He says, when the hour had come, he sat down with the 12 apostles and he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, perhaps the fullest account of the issue of the event, beginning in verse 23, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
There's, of course, much weight to the passages that we've just read, but the only parts that we're going to be interested in for this study is that which pertains to the fruit of the vine itself. There's already been a discussion of the loaf of bread earlier in this study, and later today there'll be a discussion of the cup. And so we're going to try to confine our remarks to just simply the liquid in the cup, the fruit of the vine, as Jesus calls it. And so if you have a question about the cup that comes up in your mind, we know that the cup and the liquid which it uh, contains are integrally connected in the Lord's Supper. But if you have a question that particularly pertains to the cup, I'd ask that you uh, would ask that after the question and answer. You can ask it to me, but uh, also we'll have another session for that a little bit later today. The various accounts all include some statement that Jesus instituted this memorial supper while he was eating the Passover meal with his disciples, which indicates to us that it must have been of some importance. Now, to the original readers, it would have been quite clear that if Jesus was eating the Passover meal, then the only kind of bread available to them would have been unleavened bread, per the instructions found in Exodus chapter 12, as as well as many other numerous Old Testament passages. However, the instructions about the liquid to be served at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the feast that was associated with the Passover, are much less discussed in the Scriptures. To my knowledge, there's not a clear passage that indicates what was to be drunk at the Passover meal in particular. However, in all reality, it doesn't matter too much because Jesus is very specific when he instituted the memorial supper. He says, verily I say unto you, I shall no more drink of this fruit of the vine. So whatever Jesus drank on the eve of his betrayal, he refers to it as the fruit of the vine and thus it must have been on the table during this meal. Now, the million-dollar question is, of course, the first question in our list, what is this liquid that Jesus calls the fruit of the vine? Well, brethren in the churches of Christ in America have traditionally said that this liquid was unfermented grape juice, and thus the distinction from fermented wine, which was also a common drink both in the Old and New Testaments and in the pagan societies as well. Now, it's going to be my intention to give the best case that I can for this position. However, there are a few, I think, important variations in language and maybe some semantic differences that I'm going to argue for as well in this presentation. In answer to the first question that I was asked to address, namely, what was the liquid in the cup during the Last Supper, we can say for certain that the drink was not intended to intoxicate the participants because there are numerous passages in the New Testament which condemn such practices as drinking intoxicating drink, with the exception being for medicinal purposes, which we'll look at a little bit later. For example, in Galatians 5, 19 through 20, it says the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, uh, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, and drunkenness. And it goes on as well. Again, in Luke 21 and verse 34, Jesus himself makes the statement, be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will, come, will not come on you suddenly like a trap. And for good measure, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauch- debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. 
All of these and others that we could mention serve to condemn intoxication in the world, and many of them proceed to give reason for it, particularly because of the behavior that is certain to ensue and to cause and uh, the loss of cognitive faculties in particular for a time being. Now, I'll provide one more argument for this point before we move on. It's not really our intention to give a full discussion of why drunkenness is condemned in the Scriptures. But I'll provide just one more argument for this point before we move on. Jesus claims here in these passages we've just read that he would no longer partake of this fruit of the vine until he partakes of it new with them in his father's kingdom. And yet we see as Jesus is hanging on the cross, a man runs to fill a sponge with wine and it's offered to Jesus and he drinks it according to John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. It clearly says that he drank some of the sour wine that was filled in the sponge. And thus, if Jesus was telling the truth and saying that he would no longer drink of this fruit of the vine until he drank it in the kingdom, then it must be separate and distinct uh, from this fermented wine that he would have received on the cross. Now, naturally, this leads to questions about how grape juice was prepared and preserved in those days. During the first century and even before, grape juice was prepared in much the same way that it is today. Not much has changed, really, except without some of the machinery that makes it so much more efficient now. The grapes were pressed over and over again until it had yielded most, if not all, of its liquid. And this fresh juice was often seen as a delicacy to kings and nobles and uh, was seen almost as a dessert sometimes because it was one of the sweetest things they had available to them. It was very rare that any sort of sweetener or any sort of other chemicals would have been added to it, even among the pagans who didn't care about preserving the purity of it as it was already false, far sweeter than any other drink available to them at the time. And of course, there were no modern preservatives which are able to prevent the juice from spoiling or fermenting too quickly. But most modern scientific sources that I consulted for this study seem to agree that grape juice begins to ferment, begins the fermentation process, if it's left unrefrigerated and without preservatives at around 21 days or three weeks after it's pressed out of the grape itself. However, this does not mean that the grape juice would just all of a sudden become uh, alcoholic and intoxicating at the age of 21 days. It's not as if grape juice was free from all chemicals and uh, that would intoxicate a person on day 20. And then all of a sudden on day 21, a single, person, a single drink would get a person drunk. It just simply means that around three weeks after production, the unrefrigerated grape juice would start to taste slightly uh, alcoholic, slightly of alcohol. And I might also mention that this is without the addition of any yeast or any other leavening agent, which people add today to speed up the fermentation process. Grape juice left completely alone will still turn into wine given enough time because there are natural leavening agents in the atmosphere like oxygen that would turn the sugars in uh, the liquid into alcohol through a process that we modern people call fermentation. Also, in those days, it wouldn't matter too much if you were able to seal the liquid shut in a container or not. 
in order to press, uh, because in order to press the grape juice at the beginning out of the grape, it has to be exposed to the air. And as soon as it's exposed to the air, it begins the fermentation process. So it doesn't really matter too much that they were able to seal it or not seal it. And so thus, for the, from the moment it's produced, this drink would be susceptible at least to the fermentation process. Now, in the modern world, like I said, we've figured out ways to stop that process from ever happening. We can add chemicals which prohibit the process of fermentation and allow the grape juice to be used for years and years and years without ever fermenting. Um, but even if there are no chemicals available, you can simply refrigerate the grape juice and it will, again, drastically slow down the process exponentially, in fact. This does not mean that it will stop altogether and that it will never become wine if it's refrigerated properly, but it will just increase the amount of time that it takes to become fermented and intoxicating drink. So as we can see, the ancients rarely had a need uh, to use a different word, at least the pagans did, had a very little need to use a different word for fermented versus unfermented grape juice because they were so interchangeable in those days, especially to the pagan world, who had really no cares about becoming drunk in the first place. Instead, the ancients and the Bible itself does make a distinction between intoxicating and non-intoxicating drinks. And so I would argue that when we talk about this subject, we should use those terms, intoxicating and non-intoxicating, rather than fermented and unfermented, as they are, I think, less accurate, both scientifically and even biblically at times. Because through the New Testament, especially the Gospels, you can see distinctions being made between new and old wine, that being an intoxicating and non-intoxicating drink. But very rarely do you see any process mentioned about fermentation. They don't seem to care so much about that. They seem to care more about if the wine would get them drunk or not. Thus, they cared much more about the, how intoxicating a wine was rather than its fermentation status or its fermentation age. So in answer to the second question now, does the Bible use the phrase, the fruit of the vine, to refer to fermented wine? We can say, well, the Bible is concerned primarily with intoxication and not fermentation. However, in the New Testament, the only time this phrase is used is in reference to the Lord's Supper. And as we've seen, this was a non-intoxicating grape juice. The third question is a little bit more tricky and will, is gonna require a little bit more thought on our parts. The third question on the board says, how can we determine if a reference to wine in the Bible is fermented or unfermented? Again, we might ought to think better in terms of intoxication versus non-intoxication, even though it may just be a semantic issue because we know that all of the grape juice was fermented, I guess technically in our modern sense and scientific sense of the word, from the moment that it was squeezed, or at least it began the process from that moment. But it was not all intoxicating. Nonetheless, in order to determine how wine is used in the Bible, we have to apply the same principles of interpretation as we would with any term in the Bible, which means we must rely on the context to interpret the passage for us. It has been said many times over that no word in any language has any meaning at, uh, apart from its context or separated from its context. This is a phenomenon that is certainly true in the Bible. If we take a word and extract it from its context in order to determine what it means, then we're never really going to find the correct answer unless it be sheer happenstance that we do so. 
Instead, we must read and carefully consider the context in order to make an informed decision about the definition of any word, and that holds true certainly for the word wine, and even fruit of the vine for that matter, in the Scriptures. D.A. Carson has a book in his, uh, has a chapter in his book entitled uh, Exegetical Fallacies, in which he describes the possible errors that one could have in a word study. And in the concluding paragraph, as he's summing up all that he said, he uh, says, quote, but the heart of the issue, the heart of word study fallacies, is that semantics is more than just the meaning of words. It involves context, phrases, sentences, discourse, genre, and style, end quote. There are certainly passages which are clearly referring to alcoholic wine in the Old and New Testaments. For example, you can see Genesis chapter 9 when it says, speaking of Noah, one day he drank some wine he had made and he became drunk and lay naked inside his tent. Obviously a reference to intoxicating wine. In Proverbs 23, it says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At, last, at the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, they have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it when I shall awake that I, that I may seek another drink. And finally, an example from the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23 says, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and your other infirmities. Or that your, other, your often infirmities, excuse me. While this example is admittedly a little bit more difficult, the context does indicate that Paul is asking Timothy to use this alcoholic wine for medicinal purposes in order to cure his uh, frequent stomach aches in a day and age when medicine was uh, not very available to them. The context of each of these passages, though, are such that it is impossible for them to be referring to non-intoxicating wine. However, there are others still yet where the meaning is clearly non-intoxicating wine, or at the very least, it's ambiguous. In Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 8, for example, it says, Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, Destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. This is a clear reference to wine that is not yet alcoholic, as it is still within the grape itself. And there are others that could be mentioned, but for interest of time, we'll consider the point proven that it, the Bible can use the word in two different ways. And the meaning of the word must be derived from the context and not assumed. The fourth question in our list is, may another liquid be used in the cup when no grape juice is available? This question is less about the identity of the liquid in the cup and more a question of hermeneutics and application in particular. The best way that I can think to answer this kind of question is with a scriptural analogy. If we were asked the question, would it be all right if, while we were sick and infirmed at home, we chose to worship by ourselves and not to assemble with the saints as the Bible instructs? Well, the answer we should give would be no, 
Of course, this is not something that God is seeking from you and I. If we're truly sick and unable to assemble, God does not want you to willfully transgress a commandment just, be able, just because you're unable to fulfill another. And the same may be said of this question. If we're unable to find grape juice to use for the Lord's Supper, it's not permissible to simply find another liquid that suits our fancy and hope that it will do in God's eyes. Coca-Cola, tea, whatever you want to put in the cup are not substitutes for what God has commanded. Thus, if we find ourselves without the ability to follow this command to use fruit of the vine in the Lord's Supper, then we should simply ask God in prayer to send us what we need so that we can faithfully cling to what he has commanded. The fifth question says, must the grape juice we use be red or purple? I was honestly quite astounded when I first began to research this question in depth as there seems to be quite a bit of material about it on the internet these days and even in the literature on the subject. One of the first things I like to do when I'm given a question like this is just to see what people out in the world are saying about this and what better way to do that than pull up Google and just type in this question. And that's what I did, and I found plenty of answers and plenty of very strong opinions about this. There were several sources that I found, which I don't really have the time to name, which claimed that red or purple juice was the only permissible kind of grape juice because it most closely resembled the blood which it was to represent. The evidence that was cited in support of this argument, I might mention, was not scriptural, but logical in its uh, origin. It seems that there was some even historical evidence that some churches would use a white or a green grape juice in their observance of the Lord's Supper. But around the time of the Reformation, the churches and the denominations found this to be unacceptable for one reason or another. In response to the question, though, scripturally, we have to look into what the scriptures themselves say uh, or do not say on the issue. In none of the scriptures which recount the events of the night of Jesus' betrayal is the color of the grape juice mentioned. We know from historical sources that, grape, that grapes of all colors were juiced together, meaning that green and purple grapes were not distinguished in those days, and thus it was to them a non-issue and may have even been a nonsensical question to ask the early Christians if green grape juice or if purple grape juice was the preferable liquid to use in the Lord's Supper. They didn't have that distinction back then. They just simply combined all the grape juice they had into one vessel. And this indicates that we too shouldn't make too big of a deal about it, no difference or no, or no, place, uh, no importance as placed where importance is not due in the Scriptures. The greatest thing we can do, I think, is to cling to where the Scriptures do speak on the issues of the Lord's Supper and the fruit of the vine in particular. The sixth and the final question of our study is also a difficult one, which may raise a few eyebrows when we answer it, and it is, how could grape juice be preserved unfermented in Bible times. Again, I'll say that the better way maybe to word this question might be how could grape juice be preserved non-intoxicating in Bible times? And the answer was hinted at a little bit earlier in our study. Without the presence of certain chemicals, the process of fermentation as we know it would begin almost as soon as the fruits were squeezed. 
but there are ways to slow down that process, the primary way, as we said, to refrigerate it. However, this was not especially common in the first century as it required some uh, modern innovation to get to that point. There has been some archaeological evidence, however, to suggest that some Romans and even some Jews would place fresh grape juice in large barrel-like storage containers that I'm told were large enough even for humans to fit inside, and they would then place them in these giant holes they would dig in the ground, and the ground was, of course, cooler than the air above the ground, and so it would keep the grape juice slightly cooler, maybe not completely refrigerated, as we would call it, but it's slightly cooler in the, at the very least. But again, this was very uncommon. It happened in the Roman culture to a greater deal than the Jewish culture, but it was a practice in those days. By far the most common ways to drink non-intoxicating grape juice was to take whatever was available to check to see if it had become completely alcoholic or not. If it had not become alcoholic, then it was considered fruit of the vine and grape juice, therefore, and permissible to use. If the juice had, in fact, progressed so far that it had become intoxicating, then it would often be cut with water, meaning that water would be added to the mixture in order to reduce the ratios of alcohol in the drink. This watered down the flavor some, but it was often preferable to the intoxicating wine. And I might add that this was not just a practice that was uh, practiced by the Jews. But the Romans, in fact, too, would often take older jars of wine and cut it or add water to it so that it would last longer and more people could drink from it. There are many scholars who say that aside from water, wine, especially cut wine, may have been the most popular drink in the entire Roman Empire. However, Rome was not constantly full of drunkards and intoxicated people because their wine was almost always cut with water to reduce the intoxication levels in the drink. There are a few more ways we can mention in which grape juice was preserved in those days. The, there is some documentation that the Romans would boil the grape juice until it was reduced to a more syrup-like consistency, and then they would save that syrup to add to water whenever they wanted to recreate the uh, original product. Now, boiling the juice would, of course, remove the water in it, but it would also remove the alcohol, any alcohol that had been formed in the drink and would therefore render or ensure a non-alcoholic drink. But again, this was not something that was widely practiced in the world uh, during the time of Jesus and his apostles. Now, if we return to the first question that was back up on our list, we want to say something about it. It says, what was the liquid in the cup when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper? Now, to speak where the Bible speaks, it just simply says that it was fruit of the vine, which we argued previously meant that it was non-intoxicating. However, this does not necessarily mean that it was fresh-squeezed grape juice. There is well-documented evidence that the Jews during the time of Jesus, when preparing the Passover, would have followed a similar system to that of the Romans when they would cut the grape juice with water, even if it was not intoxicating. Sometimes they would do that anyway to make the drink last longer and to make more of the drink. So that if it, but even if it did have a small amount of alcohol in it, the ratio would be reduced so much that the drink was rendered completely non-intoxicating. Now, according to one article, the author said, quote, in the New Testament, wine was probably cut with two parts water and one part wine. This is just one man's opinion, of course, one man's research that he's documented. But it does not appear that any of the Jews had a problem with this or saw it as usurping the commands of God. Instead, they were trying their best to ensure 
Their drink was not alcoholic, even though their current methods of preservation weren't able to completely keep it from fermenting as slowly as they would like. Now, in conclusion, I hope I've been able to answer just a few of these difficult questions regarding the use of wine in the Bible, and in particular, the identity of the liquid in the Lord's Supper, in the cup in the Lord's Supper. I would encourage all of us, as we uh, get close to a question and answer period, to keep an open mind about this issue and not to be closed off about some of the historical evidence. I hope I've shown that even though there is some historical evidence that there may have been trace amounts of alcohol or ethanol in the scientific term, uh, in those drinks in those days, it was not enough to intoxicate a person and thus it was rendered uh, appropriate or uh, seen as appropriate for those measures. Now, I do not have all the historical or the scientific answers despite what you may think. I hope I haven't given off that impression. I was blessed uh, to get my degree in chemistry and have a few ideas about how fermentation works. And I've taken classes and I had professors talk about that sorts of thing before. And so if you'd like to talk about that, maybe that'd be something we can talk about afterwards one-on-one -on -one if you'd like to do that. Also, I will say that there are many questions that I do not have the answer to. I hope I haven't given that impression either. Even uh, scripturally, biblically, theologically, I don't have all the answers to these questions. But I hope that uh, through this presentation, We've uh, been able to get a better understanding of the evidence at hand, both scripturally, historically, scientifically. And at this time, we can open the floor for questions.